I am going to take a few steps back just to set your mind to remember where we're at in this, and I'm going to read it, and just, boom, we're going to drop into it. So for those of you who, who, who maybe it's your first, second time here, you just haven't, you've been serving elsewhere, and you haven't heard some of the other um, messages and things like that, like you're going to probably going to want to, this will make more sense. It's not like you can't understand what's happening if you haven't heard the other ones, but it will make more sense if you have, okay? Because there's parts of this that we've already studied and stuff, and I'm not going to read, so we're going to kind of skip through it. It's not that we're skipping over it. We've already studied this piece of it. So I need you to keep that in your perspective and in your mind as we read this. We have been on this journey for a while now, which is what we call the vault. And what it is, is a complete study of all four accounts of the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what is called synoptic. They're summaries. They're just kind of giving you the big picture and events that happened and things. And then you have John, marches to the beat of his own drum, and he just decided to kind of tell the same story, but in a very, very poetic, abstract type of way. So he kind of just does his own thing. But the stories are the same. And these four accounts we have been taking... (laughs) (laughs) Fixed. I was about to ask anybody for duct tape, but I was actually concerned that several of you may just keep it in your back pocket. So. You best redneck and nice. All four of these parallel. That's what we've been doing. And we've been looking and saying, well, what does this guy say? How does this guy say it? To help us understand a couple of things. Number one, that's the full picture. Right? Right now, each one of you see a perspective that is different than the next, right? Some of you see the backs of people's heads, and you're like, ooh, dandruff, or whatever, right? And then others of you are sitting in the front row, so all you see is, is me. Some of you didn't even know why I just, you know, bent down there and moved that stool because you couldn't hear the little crazy squeaking noise that kept happening. Maybe everybody did, you did, right? But, but when you look at it, it's like there's all these different perspectives. And so what we can do is, is make the mistake of thinking that as we're reading these Gospels, they contradict if we don't look at them together and say, oh, like this and this is about the same subject matter. So look, this is his perspective on it. And so that's why we're looking at it. And by the end of this entire journey, we would have read every single recorded thing that Jesus said. Now, when I say recorded, let's define this real quick. Because in our day and age, we record everythings. Everythings. Everything. All the things are recorded. Audio, video, pictures, constantly, everything. And we can like look at something you said 10 years ago and see exactly how you said it and when you said it and whatever, right? That was not how it was in ancient times. So what they wrote down of what Jesus said was the spirit, the essence, the ideas behind it. No doubt some of it is word-for-word quotes, right? For instance, right now, I'm having trouble speaking this morning, so you're going to have to go with me here a minute. Right now, if I said all scripture is given for, you just quoted me verbatim. Why? Because you're good students now. <laughs> because I've said that constantly, right? So there's lots of things that we see that were written of Jesus that are probably quotes of things he said, little snip, snippets. 
And these are the things that are still to this day some of the most popular. Then there's the other things that it's like, well, he said a whole lot. And what we're going to do is kind of summarize. That's why they're called a synoptic gospel. This is not to dissuade us from the understanding of what Christ said and the reality of the, the true nature of it. But it is also not to, let's not look at these parts of Scripture as golden tablets from heaven that somebody was just like, I'm going to write the story of Jesus. And they're just like, and they're like, look at that. No, they sat down, they thought about it, they used the brain that God gave them. They said, how do I get the message that Jesus was coming to give us? Here's the biggest issue with the modern church, is we are a church that can tell a message about Jesus. We can tell you a lot about this person and died, resurrection, all that, but we cannot tell you the message that Jesus actually taught people. We can tell you all about him. Hey, yeah, he was born and lived in Nazareth and blah, blah, blah. We can tell you all these different things. I mean, history can tell you some of that, right? Like contrary to popular belief, actually. Um, history does prove that there was a man named Jesus. Now, the spiritual side, you have to believe it. You have to take it on faith. But the natural side, you can kind of pretty much prove that, okay? So that being said, that if we, if we look at it and we think of it that way, we will completely dis, disregard the spiritual nature of what's trying to be told to us through these stories and these understandings. So we have to look at it for what it is. Because that is the only way we'll get the full picture of the message that he taught. Not just things about him and his, the historicity of it. We need to know the spirit behind it and what he was trying to get across to us. The number one thing that we have learned that he is trying to get across to us is synopsized everywhere, all over the place, and it's this one general phrase, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Who's ever heard that phrase before? If you haven't, you just did, so raise your hand, okay? Everybody's heard it now. The word repent is, is a really poorly translated word for us today. It wasn't at the time, but it is now, because if we say repent, most of you guys think sob, cry, get snot all over the church. The more snot, the better you are, and you're you know, crying about all the mistakes that you've made, and you're just, I'm so horrible, and like get you a whip. i got to be like Jesus and whip yourself or something. Like there's, there's craziness like that that does happen. And all this, and this is repentance. No, that's penance. It's a very different thing. In the day and age that the word repent was used, the word literally is, in the Greek, is metanoia. Everybody say metanoia. metanoia. You should know the word meta because it's used a lot recently, and there's a company that just decided to change its name to meta. That is a Greek word, and it just means to change. Okay? And noia means knowledge or mind, understanding. So repent literally means to change your understanding or change your mind. So when Jesus is saying, repent, the kingdom of God is hand, it's like change your mind about what you think about life, about the kingdom of God and how it works. Change it because it's wrong. So that, that, that doesn't sound so bad. Some of you it does because you don't like to be wrong, but crush your ego. You're probably wrong about a lot of things in life. Okay, I'll leave that one alone. Some of you still think you're very right about things, okay? Right? So it's that simple. So repent, what Jesus is saying, the core of his whole message is repent, meaning to change your what? Mind. Your mind. The way you think about things, the way you view things, your perspective. Change it because it's wrong. And what do we want it to change about? About the kingdom of God being at hand. Repent, turn the other way because the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? Kingdom of God. Let's break this down real quick. Like I said, y'all got to stay with me. If you're like, well, I don't see how this had to do with what God just spoke to me. Can you go back and sing the song? No. God already planted it. I am trying to help you grow it. 
God doesn't care if you have a whole bunch of little things growing. He wants one massive, strong tree that's planted by the rivers of living water that brings forth its fruit in its season. This is Psalms chapter 1. So I don't want new things to grow in your life. Let's just get the one thing to grow. Can we do that? Okay. So change your mind about the kingdom of God. And we all think, big giant mansion, streets of gold. You know, whenever I just need money and I pray to God, he just goes out there with a spiritual jackhammer and jacks up, hammers off a little piece of the, of, the, of the concrete in heaven and throws it down to me. No. Kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is how Matthew says it. Kingdom of God is how everybody else says it. Okay? Kingdom in the Greek is the word basileia. If you want to you know, impress all your friends with some Greek words. The word in Greek, basileia, simply means a king's rule and dominion, something that is under his authority the way he does it, the way he wants it done, done, right? Okay, so for instance, you come to my house, you're going to live by Taryn's rules. No, (laughs) you're going to live by our rules, yes? Anyone who's ever let their children spend a night with my children, I tell the parents this, when they walk into my door, they cross the property line, not even the threshold. You're on my property. You're going to abide by the things that I say. If you do not, well, actually, I don't kick you out. I hold you and whip you out the door as children Uh, (laughs) and then say, go back to your parents. No, I'm just kidding. But why? Because it's my dominion. So the kingdom of God is God's way of doing things the way he wants things done. This is his dominion. And what does it say that that is, this dominion, this kingdom of God? It is at hand. Not meaning soon to come, but meaning it's tangible. You can reach out, grab it. It's here and now. Right? So if I had something, charred dirt, and I say it is at hand, y'all just thought I said keep it within your reach for no reason? No. It's to show you that is the simplicity. If you didn't keep it within your reach, which I did not, uh, I think I left it in the attic in the church at one point. Uh, <laughs> but... Why? At hand. That's as simple. And he's saying, so change your mind about this idea of all of this difficulty to achieve it and all of this, it's soon to come. He's saying it's here and now, and all you must do is do it. Choose it. Make sense? That's the core of his message. And so he goes on these long sermons and short sermons, and he uses something called a parable. Who's ever heard the word parable? If you haven't, you just now, because I said it. Y'all are catching on. Now everybody's like, I'm just raising my hand. He's going to, yeah. What is a parable? It's a fictional story that is used to illustrate something metaphorical in nature. In regards to Jesus, he uses it to help us understand spiritual things. So he creates a story that is something we can understand. We can look at and see like, okay, I get this. And he says, now this is kind of what God's rule and dominion looks like. Make sense? Right? So if I was trying to describe to you right now what an RJ45 connector is, who knows what that is? Like a handful of people. Okay? <laughs> who knows, though, what the little cable that you hook into a computer, like a landline computer or a hardline computer, if you want to get hardline internet and you plug it in, who knows what that kind of looks like? Yeah? The connector on the end of that is called an RJ45, okay? But there's, there's something else called an RJ11, and it's like that, but it's a little bit smaller. It doesn't have as many plugs in it. It's a little smaller, and it's used for something different. It's used for old-school analog phones. So remember the little phone jacks, okay? 
Do you see how I just said things that you knew and you understood in lots of ways to get you to one understanding of, and y'all are all like, what'd you learn at church today? What an RJ45 is. Uh, no. Why? So I, you, I said something that you didn't understand. And I said, but do you know what this thing is? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that part of the thing you do know what it is, I was talking about that specific piece. And then there's this other thing that's similar to that piece, do you see? But I'm still just talking about the realm of these connectors. Do you get this? So this is what Jesus does with all of these parables. He's just like, okay, hey, I want to talk about this specific piece right here. Do you understand this whole piece? Okay, I'm going to look at this piece. There's another thing that's like that that's over here. And it's all one thing that I'm just trying to get you to understand. Does that make sense? So when we look at parables, that's what Jesus is doing. He's just running around pointing at the same thing from all kinds of different angles just to get you to perceive this one thing. So last week, we taught about the parable of the sower, which is a parable that Jesus uses, and he talks about four grounds that there are. And and basically, there's this guy who's throwing seeds on the ground, and he talks about the different types of ground and and how some seed took root, some didn't, some withered away. Y'all remember that? If you don't, go back and watch it. We had the, you remember we had turf in the sanctuary, and we hauled in a bunch of rocks and, you know, and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And, And we looked at that, and we understood we're the ground in the story. And we looked at it as we're, it's a process. We're wayside ground where nothing can take root. Things get trampled over. Then we, we sometimes can become some rocky ground, and it takes root for a minute, and then it's gone by Sunday afternoon. And then sometimes it starts to grow, but all of the other things in life grow as well, and it chokes it out. And then there's one out of four. He didn't say there were two, so like it works 50% of the time. It works every time. No, he said... There's four types of ground, 25% success rate, if we think of it that way, right? So he's trying to show us the difficulty, and we looked at how the ground must be maintained, and that's kind of where we left off, and he gives us the description of that. Go back and listen to it. So I said all that just to get your mind wrapped around, remembering what Jesus is all about. Now we're going to read another parable that he tells us immediately after the parable of the sowers, what it's commonly referred to, or the seeds in the grounds. And in this one right here in Matthew chapter 13, this is where he gives us another story. So we're going to read it, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to see what he describes it as. So let's do this. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. And he, being Jesus, answered unto them, to his disciples and the people around him. He answered, he said, oh, sorry, I'm in 37. That's the description. Let me back up. (laughs) I was about to give you the answer before, before the question are trying to cheat. Verse 24, sorry, let me scroll up. Verse 24, and he put it to them in another parable. So he's Jesus talking to all of them around him in another parable. So meaning he's already told several parables, and this is another one to help you understand the same general idea. Make sense? Okay. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man which sows good seed, meaning the things he wants to grow, wheat if we can put it that way. In his field, verse 25, but while that man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the weeds. Tares are not just like, uh, among the, sorry, among the wheat. Um, tares are not just like, um, you know, weeds. It's not like, you know, a bunch of Texas grass and, de- you know, dandelions or whatever. It's a specific type that we're going to talk about in just a minute. He sowed them among the wheat, and then he went on his way. Verse 26 But when the blades were sprung up and brought forth, then they appeared the tares also. Verse 27. So the servants of the householder, so the man who was sowing his fields, right? 
with the good seed. They came and said unto him, Sir, do you not know, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then where did the tares come from? So anybody getting a little concept? There was good seed, and then there's tares, and apparently the tares are not so good. Okay. Verse 28, And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. And the servant said unto him, Well, shall we go gather them up? Shall we go get the, the tares out of there? And verse 29, But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you'll also uproot the wheat with them. So don't go try to pull out the weeds because you're going to pull out the good stuff. And we, and we don't want that. He said, let both grow together until harvest. And then in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, so the people who are going to get this, gather all the first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather all the wheat and put it in my barn. And then he ends it. It's in. Done. It's like it's kind of a cliffhanger story, right? Like, okay. What'd you do to the enemy? See, that's what we want, vengeance. Did he go get him? And no, this is the end of the story. He just leaves it there. And he gives a couple more parables, and then he gives us the answers a little bit later. So let's read the answers, and then we're going to decipher it. Because it doesn't have to be deciphered by the people of the day and age, but there's one person that I know of in this entire congregation that would literally be like totally get the seeds and stuff. Like most of us do not plant, and so we don't do that, right? Like if, if Jesus was in this day and age, I assume he'd say something about, so he sent out a group text, and then like it would be something like that. Like, but as we scroll down to verse 37, he gives the answers to this parable. He says, all right, so here's the answer to the story. So he answers them and says, hey, the one that was sowing the good seed is the son of man. Okay, son of man is a title given to Jesus. Okay, Son of man. That's, so he's basically saying, in the story, that's me. I'm the guy sowing the seed. And the field is the world, and the good seeds are the children of the kingdom. So children, God, good seed, cool. Making sense so far? He's giving us pretty good answers, I think. But the tares are the children. Depending on your translation, it'll either say of the wicked, of the wicked one, of Satan. All translations say something different. But of, of, of the wicked one is what my translation says. Verse 39, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, Bobby. It doesn't say Bobby, but it does say the devil. <laughs> and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned into the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world, verse 41. And the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend him and which do iniquity, verse 42. And he shall cast them into the furnace of fire, or fiery furnace, depending on your translation. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father who has ears. Let him hear. So he has ears, let him hear. That means if you can perceive, understand this. Does everybody get it? You know how to live your life? You know everything? No? Yeah? He just gave us the answer, right? No. Now, if we were back in the day and time of even Old English and reading this, it would have made more sense to us. But specifically, it would make a whole lot of sense if we were like back in ancient times when Matthew wrote this because it was written in Greek. Okay? And in Greek, there's a lot of words we don't have. 
And that's the situation in this. So if you followed along with us, I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. We're going to like say, recite a little, put your hand on your heart, right hand on the Bible, however you're supposed to do it. I've never been in trouble with the law. I don't know which one you're supposed to do. Um, uh, that's, that's actually wrong. <laughs> I've been arrested in the church parking lot. Okay, so uh, <laughs> now I got everybody's attention. <laughs> it was Taryn's fault. No, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, so let's look at this. The Bible, Old Testament, is primarily in, in one to two languages, which is Aramaic and Hebrew, okay? That's the Old Testament. That would be like Genesis all the way up to, what is it, Malachi is the last one, I believe? Yeah, um, right there. We could have some of the kids recite us all the books of the Bible because they go around in my house singing it all the time. Uh, and so that all is basically Hebrew primarily, okay? Then we have the New Testament, which starts at Matthew and ends in Revelation, singular, ends there. These two groups are written in two primarily different languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New. Okay? The reason this is important is because we have some people here that are bilingual or some, I don't know anybody here, but some people trilingual, they speak multiple languages. And when you speak multiple languages, sometimes you get to a point in which the word that is used in one language is like, well, what word would that be for us? Like, you know, like, and, and then you're kind of working towards it. I'll give you an example that I know. Who's ever heard the song? Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Yeah, everybody's heard that song. I swear, like, everybody's playing it. Everybody. We were at a, 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 a conference thing up in somewhere, north of the Red River. I don't care. So somewhere way up north. And when we were up there, they were singing in English and Spanish. And we were with some people from Belize and everything. And when they're singing it, they're using a word. Now, don't make fun of me, you guys, okay? Because I don't speak Spanish. But they were using a word, obrando. Did I say it well? Yeah, decently. Okay, look at me go. <laughs> and all the Belizean people were kind of like, like they didn't. And I'm like, don't you speak Spanish? And they were saying a word that I'm more familiar with, which I'm probably going to say wrong, but is like trabajo, which work. Like, and they were saying that. And so we're sitting around having a conversation, and, I, and, I, and we're kind of hearing them talk. And then we find out, because I asked some other people I knew, I was like, okay, you know the word obrando, and they're saying this word. Like, what's the difference? Because we have one word in English, right? Work, working. That's the word I'm referring to, by the way. Work, working, right? Even when I don't see it, working, working, work, okay? And so I just asked them. And I watched a husband and a wife who both speak Spanish describe the word differently and said you can use either one of them. And I'm like, but one of them has to mean something different. This is how English works. Doesn't everything work this way? No. And so as I began to understand, well, one means to do work kind of a thing, like work, like physical work, and one means like constantly in the action of working and doing something like they have a slight I don't remember exactly but it's like oh so and then they basically said oh oh Brenda that's not a word we use but it makes more sense in the song so we're going to say that word now y'all are like what does this have to do with reading it because that's how it is with Greek and English in English I'll give you a core core example we have one word for the word love which is and describing what type of love we have for someone we add a whole bunch of stuff to the beginning yes so, for instance, if I looked at Dustin and I said, I love you, man, that is not the same thing that I would say to my wife, which I say, I love you. Just so you're aware, Dustin. Different loves. 
And what do we say? Well, not, not like that, man, like, like a brother, right? So we, we have to add some qualifiers to the word because we only have the one word. Make sense? Okay. In Greek, there are three that are primarily used in Scripture. One is agape, if you've ever heard of this. Another one is philos, and another one is eros. You're saying, like, what, did I come to a language class or what? You have to understand this when I read this because otherwise you're going to just think I'm making crap up. Okay? You have to understand this. So agape love, unconditional love, okay? Meaning there is no point in which that I do not love you. Now, first off, real quick, just because I've, I've got to. I can't leave this alone ever because it just irritates the living heaven out of me. Uh, <laughs> And it introduces hell right into me. If I No, I'm just okay. So, love is an action, not an emotion, not a feeling. It is an action. It is a verb word. Okay, in English now it's changed its meaning, but that's not what they meant when they say love. Love is a choice action to cause someone's betterment. Not like I hope you have good things. Like I am actively the one making sure that you have betterment. Okay? So think about that next time you say you love someone. Are you actively causing their betterment? Mm-hmm. So, there's one type of love, which is agape love, unconditional love, meaning there's no condition you can be in in which I will not stop being and doing actions that cause your betterment. This is the love of God. Okay? Now, there's philos love. Philos love, we have a city called Philadelphia, which is called the city of brotherly love. Could you guess what philos means? Brotherly love. Okay? And then we have another one, eros which is like a love between a man and a woman, like a sexual desire love, which is where we get the word erotic from, okay? They're like, what? How does this have to do about God? It's all the pretext, because then you're going to run out of here thinking that I'm making stuff up, because you're not going to agree with something I'm about to tell you. Okay? Y'all following me? So in Greek, if they were to write about loving and da-da-da-da, they would choose one of these three words that would totally convey this specific type of love they're referring to. So if they do that, with one word, they've got three. Now, we won't even go to the complexity of then within each word. So those three different words, there's like up to 26 different spellings of each word that now determines what it's... Y'all see why everybody says it's all Greek to me? Because Greek is stupid. That's why they died out. And I'm just <laughs> so They took too long to write messages. No, okay. So like, could you imagine that texting keyboard? It'd be like... No, there's only like uh, 24 letters or whatever in it, too. Uh, so, so y'all following me? Because we're about to encounter some words in which in English, it's just going to say the same word. But in Greek, there are two different words. They have the same general idea, but they are still very different. Does that make sense? Okay? So keep that in your mind. I had to lay that whole groundwork so when I read this and start describing this to you. So let's go back to the story real quick. Y'all following me? Good, 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 good. Right up here to verse 24. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man that sows good seed in his field. Can I just, can I give it to you in the international Jared version? Okay, like in the way we would speak. She just says, let me tell you a story about a man named Jeb. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he says, let me tell you a little story. Here's kind of how the way God does things. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how it's going to look. This is kind of how the spiritual side of things looks in life. And he says, it's kind of like a guy who is in his fields. Whose field? His fields. Who's the ground? You the ground. Okay, so he's doing his thing in his field, his area. So God's kingdom, his rule, dominion. He's doing things within his dominion. Okay, and he says he's out there sowing good seeds. 
good things. Oh, wait, didn't we learn last week? It's not good things. If you weren't here on Wednesday, you didn't learn that, but you can watch it today because I have to post it. Uh, But (laughs) he says he's sowing good seed. He is sowing the good things that will grow. Wheat specifically is the example that he uses. Wheat being something that feeds you guys. Wheat is in like everything that we eat, like frosted mini wheats. Most of you are like, can we just remove the wheats and get the frosting? But yeah, like it's in everything. It's in your bread, right? So he said wheat, the good things, the things that can sustain you. He's saying, hey, it's like a guy that's sowing all that in his, in his fields. But then while the guy sleeps, so while the guy's not out there sowing it, it says an enemy comes and plants tares. In the field, okay? Tears in the field. And then what happens after that? As it's growing. So does he notice it immediately? No. It says, as it's growing, the servants. Uh-oh. The servants out there doing this. Some of you are picking up on it already. Good, good students. Yay! It says, the servants are out there, and they notice it, and they go to the master and say, hey, didn't you plant good things? This is y'all's conversation with God all the way, all the time, by the way. You go to God and say, God, you said you were good. You do good things. Look at all of that. That's what I think you sound like to God. Okay, so. (laughs) And you're saying, look at all. And you're having this conversation. Didn't you do good? Like, didn't you plant good things? And he's like, huh. An enemy came by night and sowed all this. This was an enemy that did this. And so then what happens? The servants say, well, do you want us to rip it all up? Do you want, can I just say it this, I'm going to, I can take you off all I want, because you can just leave. It's a free country for the moment. So, all right, so, you can, you, God, do you want us to go preach on the street corners and send them to hell? Which is what we have done for several centuries at this point. I'm going to tear them up. I just give it a little Texas accent when I get a little excited. Is that what you want me to do? And God says, no. Well, the man sowing in the field, which is Jesus. He says, no. Let it all grow. Because if you try to do it right now, I hope you guys are hearing the stupidity of us as Christians, by the way, because you should be at this point. This should, when we hear this, we're not the hero in the story. We're usually the ones that need to be corrected. Because what does he say? He says, no, because if you do it right now, you're going to start tearing up the good stuff too, which is kind of what the church has done. Okay, told y'all, I didn't even got to the part I don't think you're going to like. I thought y'all would like this part. (laughs) With the good hurt, like. He says, no, because you're going to start tearing up the good stuff too. Let it grow. Because once it does, then, in that moment, we'll be able to tell the difference. We'll bring them both in. We'll get rid of the stuff that doesn't. We'll keep the stuff that does. Wheat tears. Here's a couple things you need to know about Jesus' little story here. Jesus had a sense of humor that y'all apparently do not have because y'all didn't laugh at that entire thing. Here's a sense of humor. In their day and age, they knew if an enemy wanted to destroy your crops, what would they do? Burn it. Come on. Have you seen any awesome movie about war in ancient times? What do they do when they go into the village? They always seemingly have fire out of nowhere, first off, like they were just riding and no one had fire. Now everybody's running around with fire. And last time I checked, they didn't have Zippos. But, you know, they're running around with fire. And what do they do? They start burning the houses, but then they go to the fields and they set it on fire to destroy it. So he's actually being kind of comical because all of them in that day and age, you know, like, well, if you, they can, 
They would have known this process of just waiting kind of a thing. What he's trying to illustrate is kind of poking fun and saying what the enemy's trying to do is not going to work anyways. It's just it's a futile effort. Y'all didn't even catch that, did you? That's what he's trying to point out. He didn't say the enemy came and burned it. No, i got to do it all over again. Good thing I'm a creator. No. He just said, he's trying to point out and say what the enemy's trying to do here is just, it's not even going to work. Okay? Now, <laughs> y'all may not be saying it's good when you find out you're the enemy. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> what happens next is he says, no, 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 no. So, the enemy came and, 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 and sowed it, right? So, he's kind of poking some fun here. And the next thing is we have to understand is what a tear in the wheat is. Because without that, we don't really quite get why, wait, how would you tell the difference, whatever, right? Here's the difference. Wheat is wheat. Y'all pretty much know what that is. It's real, it, and you eat it, it sustains you, right? But a tear is sometimes called a darnel, is actually the word, and it looks identical to wheat. If you actually, you can Google tears, wheat tears, or darnels, D-A-R-N-E-L, right? You can, you can Google it and look at it, and when you see, they look the same. The only time you can tell the difference between the two is once they have grown and it's time to harvest the wheat because what happens is the wheat is full of real seed, good seed, not fake-looking ones, and so it does something. It bends. So the tares won't do that because they're, they're fake. They're just, they're just a, a, they, they're an imitation of. <laughs> but when it comes time to harvest the wheat... It's full of real seed. And so it has to bend because of the weight of it. Now, that's some spiritual whatnot right there. Worship means to bow or to bend. Fruit of the Spirit being real, not fake. This is all a, a, a concept to help you understand this one thing is that when it comes to the time, the real will bend. Mm-hmm. Wally's preaching my sermon ahead of me. Do you see this? So he says, wait till the time. Why? Why? Because then you're going to be able to tell. But if you do it before, the people that are just maybe almost there, not quite there, you're going to rip them up and they can't keep growing. So he says, no, we're going to wait. So then he says, now, once we wait and it's time, go out there and get them, bring it in, and we're going to separate at this point. At this point, because we can tell. How do you tell? One of these two things is not the same. He says, take all that, bundle it together, get rid of it. We're going to burn it because we don't want it. Now, the other side is the wheat. Put it in my barn. Put it in my storehouse. Okay? One of the other things that's just an interesting little side note about Darnell specifically is it's a hallucinogenic. So, and not a good way, like it will kill you if you eat too much of it. So it was very important in their day and age that they did not consume this. And it wasn't something that, that, that that's why they had to separate. A little bit of it won't hurt you too much, do anything. A little bit too much of it, you'll start hallucinating and go crazy. And a little bit too much, now you're dead and poison. So it was, they would have understood when he said tears the importance of these two things being separated because it's poisonous. Mm-hmm. So now Jesus says, that's what it's like. I'm going to separate it. I'm going to keep this. That's, that's it. Now, what is his description? So I've kind of told you the story. We're already starting to get some spiritual understanding here. But when we come down 
to verse 37. Let me describe this to you. This is where we get to the main point that I said. All of this stuff, remember, let it seal in your hearts from earlier what God just did. I'm about to get there right now. So Jesus says, listen, in the story, the guy doing the sowing, that's me. I'm currently sowing seed. Not me. I'm talking as Jesus in the moment, right? He's, he's basically telling them, y'all are all here. I am sowing the seed, which is going to be like, I'm putting seed out in the field. All of you guys, you're going to become my, the children of God, blah, blah, blah. He's like, that's me. So what, all of what I'm doing. So if you don't know what, you're doing, what, God, what Jesus did and what God did through Jesus, just listen to the last 18 sessions that we've had and the other 30 more to come. I have no clue how many more to come. He's saying, that's me. What I'm doing is like sowing the seed in the fields. He says this, the field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. This is a, a packed full statement in Greek. And to us, we just read it like the field is the world. So where he's planting the seed is in this planet. And the good seeds are the children of God. I am a child of God, so I'm good seed. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. That would be my spouse. That's what some of y'all say. I didn't say that. Why'd y'all think that? No. And we look at other people. Y'all need to hear this. We look at other people and begin to judge. Who is the tare and who is the wheat right now? Which is uprooting and not you're not supposed to do, which we read last Wednesday as well. Y'all didn't catch that either, did you? But no, no, no. See, we're already talking. Oh, I'm the good seed. but uh, uh Uh-huh. No. Stop it. Let's define these words. The field, so the place where the seed is being, is the world. Now, this first word, world, is an orderly arrangement. It is the word in Greek, cosmos, which is where we get the word cosmic from. And this specifically is cosmos, meaning like a system of orderly arrangement, this planet, this wor- the system, the things that work in this world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked. We have to understand something about the idea of children of, okay? Now, in this room, because I, I think two of mine are still in here, one of them's upstairs or what have you, but I have children, okay? Today's Father's Day. I have children, and they are the children of Jared. There's one in particular that without a shadow of a doubt you can say is a child of Jared <laughs> because he is my reckoning, Okay? So you can look at them, you can perceive them. You can listen to my brother and I and my dad and look at us and you say, oh, I see physical similarities, but also in mannerisms and things we do, they just, they're just the same. Y'all hearing this? So what would it mean to be a child of? It means to be begotten of, meaning you came from, not just came from, but you act similar to, you look similar to. It's almost like in Genesis, it says, let me make man in our image and likeness and let them have dominion over uh, image and likeness. Hmm. It's almost like you, you look the same. You do things the same. It's almost like you do it his way. It's not almost. It is. That was, that, was, that was a joke. So it's like, this is to be a child of. Y'all aren't going to like me. Here it comes. So good seed are the children, the ones that look like, sound like, walk like, talk like, do things like the kingdom, like God does it, his rule dominion. It's almost like you're the ones who make earth look like heaven which is in Matthew chapter 6, which is Jesus' prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not hurry up and get me out of here. Kingdom come, will be done. So that good seed, that's what you're doing. You are growing, planted, something good, real, something that is sustainable. That's the good seed. Children begotten of, look like, sound like, talk like, think like. 
God, the kingdom, his way. But the tares, you know, the fake ones that hallucinate things. Not like really hallucinate, like you hallucinate your own realities. In your reality and mine, God changes every other minute and every other day. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's not. Sometimes life sucks, sometimes it's awesome. Like in, in 30 seconds, you can go from loving life and your spouse to everything in the world is chaos and, and, and I'm done with it. Fake, hallucinating, does not bend at full growth. Now, these tears, this, these people, I'm not saying it's you, I'm not saying it's me. Actually, I'm, I'm saying it's everybody. Okay. <laughs> These stairs, they're the children of, and some of your translations say the devil, some of your translations say the wicked one, but the actual word here is none other than a word in Greek that some of us have became familiar with over the last couple of weeks, which is a word called peneros, which is commonly translated as the word evil. The word peneros means full of labors, annoyances, and toils. So the tares, the fake ones, the ones that aren't, aren't really helping us at all, <laughs> they, they're the ones begotten of that look like, sound like, think like, labors, annoyances, and toils. I need to say that about 15 times to let it sink in, let that marinate. Good seed, the children, the ones that look like, think like, walk like, talk like, the way God does things, the tares, the not-so-good ones, the fake ones, they are begotten of, look like, think like, walk like, talk like, evil. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not evil. No, labors, annoyances, and toils, worrying about this and worrying about that and thinking about this and what if that or that and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm such a victim and blah, blah, all this crap is this. You are begotten of labors, annoyances, and toils. I didn't say you were, I'm just saying these people are. If the shoe fits, probably your size. <laughs> That's a fortune cookie if you don't know it. <laughs> Verse 39. The enemy that sows them is the devil, Bobby. Now, before you become the devil, because the word devil here is the word diabolos, which is where we get diablo, which is where we get the word devil from. But... But, everybody listen to me clearly, every time you see this word, it is not always meaning the same thing. In this particular place, this word means one that is prone to slander, meaning you're the one doing the slandering, okay? Specifically, now this is your Bible talking Greek, right here, applied to a man, a person, whom, by opposing the cause of God may be said to have acted the part of the enemy. <laughs> yeah, so Jesus straight up says, the one that's sowing all the crap is the one that is opposed to me in playing the part of my opposition. I mean, I make no distinction between that individual and any other opposition. It's all opposition to my good seed. He said, this is the one that sows the tares. The harvest is the end of the world. Uh-oh. 
Remember, I did all that explanation about multiple words. This word world is not the same word world that we just read earlier. In verse 38, if you were looking, the field is the world. That, world is the word, that word is the word cosmos, which means a system of orderly arrangements. In this one, it's specific to like the system that's on this earth. But this word world, the harvest is the end of the world. This word world is the word aeon, which is where we get the word an eon, a period of time or an age. So he says the harvest is the end of the age. What age? We're about to find out. And the reapers are the angels. The word angels here means like a messenger. That could be spiritual, like angels. And it could be a messenger, like a person that is an angel. It makes no distinction at this moment. It's just saying are the messengers. Okay? Verse 40. As the, therefore, the tares that are gathered up and burned into the fire, so shall it be at the end of this aeon. Age. And the sun's... Uh, the Son of God shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend. The word offend literally means things that block or become stumbling blocks. Things that get in the way of. Get in the way of what? His kingdom. And they which do them, uh, which do iniquity. And the word iniquity here literally means to transgress. It literally means... The condition of one without law, meaning one without any instruction, meaning one that does whatever they want, meaning that wide path that we talked about on Wednesday, if you didn't catch that. You didn't by the looks on your faces. And cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now let me give you a touch of this and then we're going to go back to the big final point. And then I'm done on Father's Day. This right here's description, this is another time, we've talked about another one, where Jesus is doing what is commonly referred to as a prophetic parable. Where he is speaking of things that are and things that will come. Now, most of you right now, this is where you're going to want to throw stones at maybe. We took them out of the sanctuary, so you can't. Most of you right now are thinking, end of time. And whenever Jesus comes back on the white horse, and then he's going to gather everybody up, and he's going to look at them and say, you get to go to heaven, you get to go to heaven, you get to go to heaven, but not you. And this is what we think. Like We think a very Oprah scenario here or something. But what he is referring to is something for us that has now already happened, something for them that had not yet happened. And this, do not apply things out of context. I am only referring to this particular time. What he is referring to is something that happens, give or take, 40 years later. You can look it up in history. It is when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay? So he is here standing, talking to them and saying, this example about how the kingdom of God works, here's what you need to understand. All of this stuff, there's certain parts of it that have already kind of, they are and will always happen, which is the reaping and the sowing, this whole idea. This is how the kingdom of God works, and it's a kingdom with no end. So it's always going to do this. This is how it works, okay? The next piece he goes into talking about the separation is directly in reference to this thing that's actually going to happen in history. It has not happened yet. Now, how do I know that? Because in one other place, we already read it, and in three others, we're going to talk about it. But Jesus, okay, y'all following me? Okay, I got to give you this because this, okay? 
hit rewind. If I'm talking too fast, you can slow me down on YouTube. Okay, you can slow it down. Right here. Later on, we're going to see Jesus standing on a mountain. Or hill, it's a mountain for Texas. And they're standing on the other side, and they're looking at Jerusalem. They're looking at the temple. And he tells them, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, I tell you that before this generation, and the word there is the same kind of word as aeon, this age ends. So before you guys die, he's talking to his disciples, every stone from that building will be thrown off and removed and completely destroyed. And he says, and on that day there will be wailing and gnashing teeth. Same thing that is said. So that's Jesus' prophecy to them. Now time goes on. Jesus dies, resurrects, boom, ascends. Now we fast forward, because that was in about uh, 33 AD. We fast forward to 70 AD. 70 AD, in the same time frame between the Passover and the day of Pentecost, which was just like last Sunday, the Romans decide on their holy celebrations they're going to come and invade, and they sack Jerusalem. And leading up to the day of Pentecost is the day that they finally achieve their goal, and they are so ticked at the Jewish people that they do something quite odd. They completely destroyed the temple. Every single day, and to this day, you can go to Jerusalem, and you can go look at the Temple Mount and look down, and there's still these big blocks buried in, and they've literally toppled the whole building, not a single bit of it left. Now, over time, the foundational stones that were kind of like what they built on, right, like the concrete, okay, has been uncovered. Does anybody want to guess what that last place uncovered? It was on the west side. It's called the Western Wall. It's commonly referred to as the Wailing Wall. This is what he's talking about. He's prophesying, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Watch. Now, there's something really core that happens spiritually now. See, that's all the natural, so you can understand what he's talking about. But the spiritual thing that happens on that day and that time, from that moment on in 70 AD, the Romans basically completely demolished the system of Jewish belief. And from that moment on, the high priestly order, the way they did their worship, which was the high priest, the Pharisees, all of that stuff was done away with and never instituted again. From that moment on, all of the tears, all the fake, all of the religious whatnot was ripped away and done away with from that moment on. This is, this is how Jesus thinks, much smarter than us. So he says, I came to fulfill the law. Do you want to know why? Ask me why. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you asked. If you look at the Old Testament, before there was high priests or any of that, God never intended, never wanted that. Go read your own Bible. Go read Genesis, Exodus. The priesthood is not instilled until much later, and it's because God's people kept saying no. Genesis, we're created directly with God. We decide, now we know better. From that moment on, God is constantly trying to get us back into communion, back with him, outside of this wicked, evil, labors, annoyances, and toils, trying to fix the situations that we can never fix, and doing something that we were supposed to do from the very beginning, which we use this word so loosely, which is called faith. Which is called, in the beginning when God creates all this thing, we were in a place in which God provided all things. 
And our only job was to just simply do what he asked us to do, which was to maintain what he had already created. The very thing he took from what is called, right, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void in the Aramaic. That is called tohu vavohu. It literally means death, chaos, and destruction. He took that, and he took it and made it something grand and great and perfect. He said, all you got to do is do what I, stay in my kingdom. Do what I tell you to do. Do this. But we said, nah. <laughs> I'm on the highway to hell. <clears throat> and we said, no, I totally love death, chaos, and destruction. I love Peneros. I love being full of labors, annoyances, and toils. You're like, no, I don't. I wish they would go away. No, you don't. You just keep creating them. <laughs> okay, let's continue on. I ain't done yet. So he says, this, this is what we did. And then after that, you see God... Through Moses, most of y'all think through Moses and the Ten Commandments and the law, and he shut up the priesthood. No, if you actually read, he says, Moses, you come up with the elders, and I'm going to show you guys something, and then I want the people to come too. But as the people got close, he said, you're going to stay there because I'm going to show you something. And if you read it very carefully, you'll see that he says, once I show you this, I want to commune. And what does he say? He says, I want to dwell with my people. The same way he said it at the beginning. But what do the people do? They get close and they say, nah, hey, Moses, you just keep doing it. We're going to go do our thing. You do you, Moses. And they go down the mountain. And from that moment on, if you listen and you read your scripture, it says, now God says, all right, they ain't getting this. You thick-headed suckers. This is my version of God. And he talks to Moses and says, listen, this is what we're going to do. And he sets up this entire order of orchestration to help them understand what is coming and everything that's got to happen to help them see and do a final plan to say, I can be with my people. That final plan is commonly referred to as Jesus, the Christ, the one who said, okay, the spirit is in you. And he's saying, kingdom of God is a hand. Repeat, go the other way. Get away from the labors, annoyances, and toils. And here's what I want to show you real quick. I'm going to dabble a little bit with uh, this idea of religion, because keep in mind, modern day, what religion has now become is a subset of rules in which someone abides by. And if they abide by them, their deity says they get to enjoy whatever craziness they come up with. We're in that group because, you know, we're like, streets of golden mansions. You're not a body anymore. What do you need a house for, idiot? And I didn't, I mean, you need a car to drive on the road? No, it's illustrative. So we'll dabble on this religion thing. But don't get caught too much up on that. Get caught up on your heart thing. Because I'm going to show you something right here. And this is broke down pretty plainly when he says, The field is the world, the seeds of the children of the kingdom. Uh, the good seeds are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked. The wicked. Replace that word with wicked and replace it with its true definition, which is full of labors, annoyances, and toils. What is the opposite of full of labors, annoyances, and toils? Okay, those are all good, but there's a better one. Faith. The definition of faith in Scripture, not your dumb definition, but the definition of faith in Scripture is something that is true no matter anything under consideration. Which means, come on, just, just do it. I look at this thing and I say, this is true. Faith says, this is true, no matter what thing you bring up and say, but would you look at this thing? Mm -hmm. Okay, y'all listening. That's the real definition of faith. Okay, y'all think faith is, I said it, so I believe it. Wrong. Faith at its core is to say, I deem this one thing to be true, 
No matter anything under consideration, meaning if you tell me, well, could you consider this? Would God still be good if this happened? There's a story of Job that is like the, the, the precipice of this understanding, okay? Maybe one of these days we'll study that because all y'all are going to get off into crazy weirdness, but it's actually a pretty basic story if you look at it. If the story is about faith and about God, not about all the other stuff. Sorry, side note. Now, back to this. True. No matter anything under consideration, meaning when I think about anything, this doesn't change. We can't think about anything for more than a few seconds. Much less think about the same thing the exact same way all the time. What is that thing we're supposed to think about the same way all the time? God. Why? Because he's constant, consistent, never changing. So it's not really like... It's not like you got to keep researching the thing in different ways. to under, It's like it's the same thing. The same, we say it this way in Scripture, yesterday, today, and forever, God is constant, consistent, holy, meaning when I get view of him. Like many of you did this morning when he said, let me grow this thing. And you got view of him, and you're like, God, you're great, and you're good. Now you go and start to consider life, and he no longer is, which means, boom, oh, ye of little faith. He's not constant, consistent, and true to you. Which, what does that introduce into your life? Labors, annoyances, and toils, because you're constantly playing the evaluation system and saying, well, what about this? Well, I don't know. God may not can overcome this, but can I overcome this? And No, you can't. He can. But oh, so if I get it view over here, and you're constantly playing this game, this juggling game of this thing and this value and this thing, all the while God's sitting over here saying, I am more constant and consistent and true than any of those things combined. Now, before you clap, That is the definition of true faith that we have muddled down. Isn't it the best thing that the opposition could do is to make faith something that it's not, to make evil something that it's not. So you're playing a game that's not even the game. You're over here trying to play Monopoly and gather up money, and God's like, no, this is sorry. <laughs> y'all get that? Okay, you know. <laughs> I crack myself up sometimes. Okay, so <laughs> y'all are even, what, what's the best trick of the enemy to do? Almost like change your entire understanding to where you can't perceive the true nature of it all, and then you're fighting a game that's not even the game itself. This is true faith. But what we have done in this mudding of the waters of faith and belief and all of this stuff, because we don't know the message Jesus came and taught us, we don't know any of that, so we're so messed up in it. We do it this way. See, because one's belief or one's faith, and I want to say it the way that God, I feel like God just gave it to me like this morning. I literally just typed this in. It says, one's faith or belief is not in words or in action. It is in thoughts and internal conviction. See, I see all of y'all right now. Well, thou shalt not murder. That's one, like that's an action. That is an end result. That is what happens when the wheat becomes true and it bends and it doesn't do the things. The actions are the end result. See, oh, what about words? Words are irrelevant. God could care less how many times you say Jesus three times and click your heels. He looks and says, words, not the judgment. Actions, not the judgment. This is the person of Christ, by the way, real quick, if you ain't catching this. This is how, if you can imagine a, a, a line right here, right? When Jesus came and fulfilled what he said he was going to fulfill, it means this is the bar. You have faith in me, it does not matter. The action does not drop you below the bar. The only thing that drops you below the bar is no faith. So it's not your actions that are the issue. It's not your words that are the issue. 
It is the internal conviction and heart of God actually being true and who he said he is. Now, before y'all think he's who he said he is, bring me a Lexus. Who he said he is as it pertains to your self-worth, to other people's worth, to your relational statuses, to the worth of anything else, to the internal pieces of it. All the other crap that comes later is not what God is intending to provide for you. He's intending to provide you the peace, which peace only comes from faith. See, we, we think, oh, well, I need peace. You cannot have peace till you know God and know that his constant, consistent, true nature does not change under any circumstance that there can possibly, will possibly, may possibly be. So it's not an action judgment. Well, what about, are you saying people can do anything they want? Yeah, Paul said it that way. All things are permissible. They're just not, what, expedient. The word expedient means like, help me get to the end goal. What end goal? The end goal of understanding truth. So I can do whatever I want, but I don't want to because I know the true, real thing. See, we approach it in reverse, and this is the beauty of what religion has done, which has destroyed every view of what true faith is, which is to say, get your action right, then your words will match up to your actions because you'll do the right things, and you'll start saying the right things, and then you'll believe in God. Incorrect, that is a complete reverse of what God said. God said, get your heart on me, get your mind on me, let me water it. Then you begin to say things because it's almost like out of the heart the mouth speaks, and then all of a sudden my actions line up, which means you can be the most messed up looking action person but keep your heart right, and eventually we will see the seed sprout. But we approach it in reverse. <laughs> well, it's Father's Day. That's my Father's Day present. <laughs> Are you seeing this? And we look around and call someone hypocritical because they stumble and fall. And what are we doing? We're taking the two before the harvest is ready and saying, look at you stumbling and falling. And we're ripping out the good seed that God's trying to sprout up. And he says, keep your dead gum mouth shut and keep your mouth on me. Yeah, keep your mouth on me. Keep saying the things I said. Keep doing the things I said to do. Because if you keep viewing me, all those things happen. And I use this example all the time, but it's just the only one I got, so pray to God that he gives me another one. But I don't wake up every morning and say, Jared, don't you cheat on Taryn. Jared, you better not. Jared, Jared. I don't. The closest that I ever come to thinking that is right here when I'm having to use this example of the intense depravity in our minds of not viewing God. Now, that is not a praise on me of look at how great of a husband. That is not even the mark of a good husband. That's like the baseline. And we've made that like way up here. It's like, that's just simplistic. I don't have to wake up and remind myself not to do things because I've got view of the one that I want. And so in so having that view, everything in my life shifts and changes. Didn't my voice get high-pitched enough for you? <laughs> this is the, what the reality of the Spirit of God within our lives has to become. Not because we want to see actions change or we want to say the right things. Because we just want to get to know him. And when we get to know him, we see the grandeur of how he created, how he does what he does. Everything about that. And all of a sudden, everything in me says the exact opposite of what I was saying yesterday. And then all of a sudden, the opportunity comes to bend and to show my fruit. And I do something that is completely the opposite of what this world, this cosmos says to do. And all of a sudden now I'm good seed, begotten of the Father. And I'm not ap actively purveying death, chaos, destruction, labors, annoyances, and toils. The only way, you can't get your mind off of the negative things until you get your mind on the good thing. And there's only one good thing. No one is good but God is what Jesus says. He said. So the only way you're going to get rid of all that 
is to get view of this. Well, Jared, you don't understand. You don't know. And usually it's what someone did to you. That's 90%, like, I don't know, I'd probably go upwards of 95% of all of y'all's issues and all of our issues as people is what other people did to us. You don't know. Don't care. Do I not care about No, no, no. I didn't say I didn't care about you. I didn't say God didn't care about you. He said, I didn't change. I'm going to say it this way. Why are you more concerned about what someone else did to you instead of what I did for you? Say that again for you. Why are you so concerned about what other people have done to you instead of what God has already and is constantly purveying and doing for you right here, right now, did it from the beginning of time, will do it to the end of time? That should, I mean, could you imagine? You can't screw up enough. Now, don't go test that theory. No. <laughs> this is the view of God. And it changes the action. It changes the verbiage. It changes the thought process. I no longer look at this person and see this person that may or may not have done something to me. I look at this person and say, that's supposed to be an image bearer of God. How do I become the good seed that's planted beside? And how how do I bend down and plant? How how do I water what's down in there? You start looking at them differently. You look at situations in life. And you look at this situation completely different. And you don't say, oh, how am I ever going to get out of this? You're going to look at it and say, this is an opportunity right now. I see everyone else would respond with this dumb stuff. That's my clean version of what I was about to say. <laughs> I get really excited. <laughs> everyone else would respond this way. I am now going to respond this way. His way. I can go... I can do this for eternity. It begins, this is what I want to say. It begins with the heart, the spirit thought. That's why so much of scripture has to do with change your heart, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind. Think differently about this. Look at this differently. It's constantly. It begins with the heart, an internal conviction of thoughts of what you are convinced is true. What are you convinced is true in life? Most of us are convinced in victimhood, death, chaos, and destruction. We are convinced people are out to get you. Most people don't give you two thoughts. They're too busy like you, worried about themselves. They ain't thinking about you. They ain't out to get you. They're out to get them what they want, which is the same thing you're doing. So y'all are both just stabbing each other. Dumb. It's a spirit, heart, internal thing of what you are convinced is true. And when I am convinced God is true... Everything begins to change. Then my words begin to say what I am convinced is true. I just did something to my computer. Okay. (laughs) What I am saying I'm convinced is true. Then my actions line up with what I said and what I believe and I am convinced is true. So if we see our actions in things, they are simply just the little red light, little things, and here's the fruit. Here's what's the end result of all of this stuff. It's not to say fix the action, it's to say fix the heart. It's to say if I see my actions being death, chaos, destruction, I have no view of God. I'm not going to try to fix my action. I'm not going to try to fix my words. I'm going to go to the heart. I'm going to present the heart to God. I'm going to say, God, I'm going to put it right here, and I'm going to stay convinced that you are true. And then these things happen. I'm done. Now, a lot of times, this is the last thing that comes up in our minds is, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to give it to God. What you're trying to do, still, people, you're trying to still 
flip it. You're trying to still approach it, and you're saying, well, I just want to think differently, so how do I give this to God? And it's like, poof, you got to do the work. God says, I got the tools. God said, I got the power. I got the power. Okay, so I got all of it. But you got to pick up that tool and maintain your ground. If you do not pick up the tool and work the ground, it will get choked out. It will get burned up, and people will trot all over it. Maintain the ground. And he gave us tools to do that. You say, what is the tool? It's his spirit within us, which is prayer, first and foremost, primarily. That is why we put it everywhere on this building. My house shall be called a house of prayer, not of great music, although we hope so. Not of great teaching, although probably not. Whatever it is, we hope and we pray that this house, this physical one and this house, you, dwelling place, is a house of prayer, constant communication with the Spirit of God because the way I get to know him is keep talking to him. And he puts these things in me that begin to, to lead and guide me. He begins to convict me and shift me on things that I didn't even know were down in there. Then he gave us something called Scripture, which is literally his words written by other people that, ha- that knew him. You don't even got to start from ground one to ground zero. Isn't that crazy? If you're like, well, I don't know how to keep you of God, just read Psalms. Read, well, read anywhere, really. But read Psalms. David, great example of failure. Just perfect. I mean, he hits all of the right, wrong boxes. But yet he is still referred to as a man, what? After God's heart. See, we think like he's just like him. No, he said, I'm after it. I'm trying to find it, I'm trying to obtain it, because that is what's real, true, consistent for me. And when I am convinced that is true, everything else. And so until the church grasps this, gets this, and the Spirit of God becomes conviction of true, true faith, not this idea of I'm going to walk on water because I want to to prove to somebody else that ain't faith. Faith is just I'm convinced of the reality of the Spirit of God within this world, within my life, the creator of the universe, all the songs we were singing this morning. Until the church takes grasp of that, all we're doing is playing at it, and we're continuing to be the tares, just continuing to muddy the waters, continuing to purvey death, chaos, destruction. Until we get view of him. So let this settle. All the words that God has spoken to you, whether it be through the time of prayer or the time of music or right now in this message. Let that settle on you and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop looking at my actions. Jesus has got that. I'm going to stop looking at my words because the words of my mouth is just a mouthpiece for the heart. I'm going to start taking my heart to the heart of God. Let that settle on you. Not as a settling of shame. That has nothing to do with God. A settling of saying, now I see. I am. It's almost like there's freedom in saying, I'm not having to worry about trying to do all the right things. I'm not having to worry about saying the right things. I'm just worried about getting to God because when I get there, he'll tell me. Amen. Now, when I say tell you, it more than likely will not be an audible voice from heaven. It will be an intuition within you that God says, I already put in every single person from the dawn of time. We call it intuition, senses, feelings. We call it anything other but the thing it is. Let this settle on us. Let this invigorate us. Let this give us freedom to seek wholeheartedly, passionate, fervent, ardently after the Spirit of God above all else.